Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I want you this morning to come with me on a journey. It's going to be a journey of the imagination. I want you to picture yourself with me traveling. We're going to go on top of a high tower. In fact, you could picture it in your mind as a skyscraper uh, downtown in some great city. We're going to ascend to the very top of the tower. We're going to the observation deck, the place where they have all the glass windows, and you can press yourself against the glass, and you can look out, you can see all the way to the horizon, as far as your eye can see. We're so high up from the observation deck, that we can see everything all around us. And we're going to take a look at what we can see and what it means. Because our text this morning is very much like that experience of being in a high place and looking out and seeing to the horizon. Now, in the book of Zechariah, we've already seen what you might think of as almost like an anthology of all the different kinds of prophecy. The various ways God communicates through prophets And they can be very different. You remember at the very beginning of Zechariah, and then again in the middle section, those prophecies, they're almost like sermons. They're very didactic, instructive. In that mode, Zechariah sounds a lot like Haggai. But then in the night visions, totally different. Right there you've got these surreal visions, these images that you really have to think about to understand And that, it doesn't feel like Haggai at all. In fact, it feels more like the book of Revelation, the kind of stuff that you read in apocalyptic literature. And now, starting in chapter 9 and going all the way through the end, we encounter another genre of prophecy. And this one is the one I would call classic prophecy because this is the kind of thing you think of when people talk about biblical prophecy. Here, Zechariah, he sounds a lot like Ezekiel. He sounds a lot like Isaiah or Jeremiah, now he's predicting future events, things that are going to happen down the road, telling us what to expect. And so he's communicating in another one of the ways that God speaks through his prophets. And that's why we need to go up into the observation deck, because that's what this kind of prophecy is like. This is the kind of prophecy where it's almost as if God says, hey, come up here with me for a moment and let me show you where we're at. Look out to the horizon. Let me show you what's coming. It may seem far away, impossibly distant, but come up where I am. And as you look, you'll see what's ahead. That's what's happening here. We're given a glimpse of what's ahead. Of course, if you've ever done this in real life, if you've ever been in the observation deck on a big skyscraper, you know that not only does the height give you the ability to see much farther, but it also distorts what you see. If you look out to the horizon, you start seeing things, and it looks like they're almost on top of each other, one building right next to the other one. You're like, I could easily walk there. I could get there in in 10 minutes. But then when you go down onto the ground level and you actually start walking, you realize things are a lot farther away than they seemed when you were so high up. But it was difficult when you had that perspective to predict exactly how much space there was between the things that you can see. 
And that's what happens here in Zechariah 9. We're being shown things that are going to happen in the future. And as you look from the God's eye point of view, it seems as if they all kind of happen at once. They're all kind of part of the same thing. But in fact, these events are spread out over time. And it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of history to get from one to the other. Now, big picture, chapter 9 is about the coming of a great king. It announces the coming of a great king. And there's actually clues in the text about who this great king is. If you look at the first stanza of chapter 9, and it'll be helpful. I haven't given you in your order of worship all of the chapters. So if you want to refer to your Bible, you'll see everything that I'm talking about here. In the first stanza, the first eight verses, there are clues about the identity of the king. And if you know your history it seems very clear who is being referred to here. It sounds a lot like Alexander the Great. But if you keep going and keep reading, you get more clues. And in the second and the third stanza, it becomes clear that the great king that we're waiting on is very different than Alexander the Great was. The king whose coming causes Jerusalem to rejoice is a shepherd king. He's a king made after the fashion of King David, who's going to rule very differently than a conqueror would. This king will come to do justice on the enemies of Jerusalem, but the reason that his people rejoice is not the justice done on their enemies. It's the fact that this king is coming to save his flock. Let's look at the first stanza. This is verses 1-8. through The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. But the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia, will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth, It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Now as you read those words, they're pretty self-explanatory. Perhaps not. There may be some confusing place names there or events that you're not sure quite what they're alluding to. But what's happening here is an oracle, as it says in our translation, or a more literal translation, a burden. And a prophetic burden is always an oracle of judgment. Like something's coming and it's not something you're going to enjoy. Punishment, judgment, justice is coming. And in this case, justice is being proclaimed on Persia, which is referred to here in coded language. Uh, with the word Hadrach, right? The Persians are the region, the, the, the great rulers of this land that Israel now finds itself in, but they're going to get their comeuppance. 
This kind of coded language is not unusual for prophecy. It's pretty common when you're referring to contemporary powers in prophecy to use these kinds of uh, nicknames, we might say. Similar to the way in the book of Revelation, the city of Rome is described in coded language as Babylon. Geographically, though, these are real places that are being described. And if you got your map out and you plotted the course of them, you would see not only are they real, but they also have a sort of linear connection. The, the line moves more or less north to south. It traces a certain route. It goes from, from Persia into the, the, the lands of the Phoenicians and then into Philistia, which is nearby Israel. This line is not a coincidence. This is a very deliberate path. It is, in fact, an invasion route. And I don't mean that hypothetically. It is the actual invasion route that Alexander the Great took less than 200 years after these words were written. So 200 years after Zechariah's prophecy, a conqueror did come. He traveled down this path and he did the things that Zechariah mentioned. You know anything about the life of Alexander, you know that he came down and fought the Persians and defeated them, but he did more than that. He traveled down the coastline. He reached the city of Tyre, which is mentioned here, which is a sort of island city that had this rampart that protected it. Alexander the Great laid siege to the city. He built a giant causeway, basically an earth bridge, so that he could get there, and he didn't leave until he had defeated it and reduced it utterly. The city, of course, was destroyed. The causeway is still there. It's no longer an island, thanks to Alexander's work so many years ago. Alexander also reduced Gaza, the land of the Philistines, humbled all of them. In fact, the ruler of Gaza, who resisted him in siege, lost his life as a result when they were conquered, just as Zechariah said would happen. These prophecies were fulfilled, and they were fulfilled not that long, after the prophet spoke these words. Alexander the Great did these things, but Alexander the Great was merely God's instrument. As you see in Zechariah's words, it is God who is acting through him. It is God who is humbling the pride of the Phoenicians by taking their rich cities and reducing them to rubble. It is God who is taking the blood out of the mouth of the Philistines, literally ending their idolatrous worship, reducing their gods to rubble. Interestingly, according to Josephus, even Alexander the Great was in on the significance of what was going on. Josephus records in this uncorroborated account an encounter where Alexander the Great goes to Jerusalem, and as he sees the people of Jerusalem and he sees the high priest coming out to meet him, he falls down on his knees before the high priest, and he claims that back in Macedonia he had a vision where a god arrayed in the way that these priests are arrayed told him, Go and conquer, and I will guide you. So he himself believed that he was an instrument of God. Like many conquerors before him and many conquerors after him, Alexander was used by God. He was not the great king that God had promised. That was another. And by the way, liberal scholars of Scripture will tell you very quickly that the last few chapters of Zechariah from chapter 9 on were not written by Zechariah at all because they predict these events that happened 200 years later. They must have been written after those events. And you can understand why they're so quick to affirm that because if they didn't, 
they'd be acknowledging that Zechariah was in fact an accurate prophet who had a word from God which predicted future events which actually came to pass. But as we will see, and as we have already seen, Zechariah prophesies true things that do come to pass much greater than the life of Alexander. So here in the first stanza, we see God takes a protective eye towards his people. He guards over them. He watches over them. And in his power, he uses all kinds of instruments to bring his will to pass. But we don't worship the instruments. We don't worship the the tools that God uses to bring about justice. We worship the God who works in all things to do these great things. You might think of the first stanza and think this is a warning. Watch out. He's coming. A great king is coming. It's not the one you think. Alexander does these things, but he is not the fulfillment of the prophecy. Instead, there's a different king, a shepherd king. He's going to come differently. He's going to come not bristling with weapons. He's going to come armed with humility and righteousness. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. For you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. In this middle passage, we see the first of a number of references in this final section of Zechariah, which are later quoted in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' passion. In fact, Zechariah is the prophet quoted most frequently in those sections, which are talking about the death of Christ. Zechariah is the prophet who steps into the forefront And as we study these final chapters, we'll see there are a number of these details that we learn in the gospel narratives were foretold by Zechariah. Obviously, this one is Zechariah 9.9, which talks about the, the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday. Back on Palm Sunday, we skipped ahead in Zechariah and we looked at that passage But did you know this? There is a remarkable thing about a king riding into his city on a donkey as opposed to a a grander animal. Alexander the Great, if he was riding in, would have rode his his big white horse, Bucephalus, in in all his glory. But uh, not Jesus. Jesus rode a humble mount. And you might think, well, that's what was unique about Jesus. He wasn't like the other kings. He was different, which is true, but Jesus wasn't the first person to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. In fact, that's what the kings of Israel did. David did it. Solomon did it. All of the kings in the Davidic line, the way that they entered in and took possession of their kingdom, they did so riding on a donkey. The symbolism here isn't unique to Jesus alone. It's a symbolism that applies to the rightful rulers of God's people. They were all called to enter in this way because There was a symbolism attached to it that the kings of my people are different than the kings of the world, the kings of the nation. 
They are, as one scholar put it, humble yet victorious. They arrive unarmed and yet they vanquish. And Jesus, by entering this way in fulfillment to the prophecy of Zechariah, shows that He is the ultimate King in the line of God's kings. He is the one who has been proclaimed. He is the shepherd king. Jesus is humble, yet victorious. He's not armed with weapons or armies. He's armed with righteousness and brings salvation with Him. In fact, if you look, He's not distributing weapons to the people. He's taking weapons away from them. He's taking away their their war horses and their chariots. It's like He's disarming His people rather than equipping them for violence. Jesus conquers, but according to Zechariah, He doesn't do it through might or force. He does it because He, in the words of Zechariah, speaks peace. He conquers by speaking peace, by speaking restoration, shalom. He brings not destruction, but restoration. He brings freedom, Zechariah says, because of the blood of my covenant with you. The righteousness that he came with, that he wielded, is a righteousness that's imputed to all of his people through faith. Through the atonement, the shedding of his blood. For the sake of the covenant promise that he made to his people, a promise of salvation, the shepherd would save his flock. You see here, he restores the fortunes of his people. They do become strong. He, He wields them like a bow and arrow. They become, as it were, weapons of righteousness in his hands. So their strength increases. He saves them. He justifies them. But He also strengthens them. He sanctifies them. He gives them power. He builds them up. We even have in this section another allusion to Greece. That they will rise up against Greece. Which is another one of those things that they did actually do. The successors of Alexander were overthrown by the Jews who were victorious over them. That was in the period of the Maccabees. The period between the Old Testament and the New We see that worldly kings may fight to dominate and destroy, but the shepherd king that God is sending fights to save and to restore. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 says that the weapons of our warfare are not physical, but spiritual. He says they're not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Alexander may have reduced the city of Tyre, but Jesus laid siege to the city of man, to the city of sin, and brought it to its knees, and reduced it to rubble, and stole its inhabitants, and made them His people. What that means is you cannot fight for Christ's kingdom with any other weapon than righteousness. There is no other weapon to wield in the battle for truth, in the battle for Christ, for the Gospel, There is no other way to fight that fight than righteousness. There is no violence that we can perform. No force that we can use. No coercion. This is a battle that can only be won as Christ wins His battles. He speaks peace. He calls His people to speak peace as well. When I read these first two stanzas, there's a song from my childhood that I remember. As I say, there's a kind of warning 
in the first stanza. And then in the second stanza, there's, there's a, a, a call to rejoice. But both of them are based on the same thing. It's the day of the arrival of one who is coming. And the childhood song that keeps turning around in my mind, I, I definitely shouldn't sing it out loud. That would be totally embarrassing. But you embarrassed yourself last week by quoting from Field of Dreams. The song that I keep thinking is the, the old Spider-Man song. Remember the cartoon? Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Zechariah, a little more exalted language. But the warning is the same. You may be a criminal, you may be a sinner, you may be an enemy of God's people, and if so, Look out, the shepherd king is coming. Justice will be done. You may be in despair. You may be in Jerusalem wailing and lamenting all that is lost and the impossibility. But look out, the shepherd king is coming. It's time to rejoice. The shepherd king is coming to save his flock. Then the Lord will appear over them, Zechariah says, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. and Be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. How great is his goodness and how great his beauty Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. The shepherd is coming, and the way the shepherd saves his flock in the same way Jesus will save his people. The flock will see their strength renewed through sanctification and will now become the strength of the shepherd. They will be victorious in the spiritual fight that is coming. We learn here the way that the shepherd cares for the flock the Lord protects them. See in verse 15, the Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. That's a great translation, but it's not a very literal one. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's a little more raw than that. They will eat the sling stones. They will eat them. I mean, imagine you're attacking and someone has their slingshot out with a giant stone in it and they cast it at you the way David shot that stone at Goliath. But instead of cracking your head open, you just eat it and keep going. And the more stones they throw, the more you devour. Like you're just eating them up almost as if the stone has become bread and you like it because that's how much strength you've been filled with that the weapons of their warfare cannot prevail against you. You consume them Utterly, that's the strength that the shepherd gives to his people. He protects them. They hurl rocks at us and we swallow them whole and keep going. Not only that, the shepherd protects them, but he also fills them with his spirit. You say, well, where do you see that in there? Well, it has to do with drunkenness. You see the metaphor that Zechariah gives. He's describing the, the flock, the, the people, the sons and daughters, as if they are you know, flush with wine. They are drunk like people who revel. 
And that metaphor of drunkenness, they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. That's a metaphor that you see in the New Testament as well. Think about the day of Pentecost. What was the accusation against the people the Spirit had been poured out onto? Looks like somebody cracked open the bottle a little early. They're drunk. They're just drunk. Even Paul uses this metaphor in Ephesians 5. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A a, a power, but a power that leads to exuberance and to joy, like roaring with victory, flushed with success. It's a good feeling that's being described. And when you read those words... uh, Drenched like the corners of the altar, you should underline that. It's the most beautiful image here because it's not what you think it is. You're imagining, you know, maybe somebody sloshing the wine around too much. You're imagining, oh, this is like Elijah and they've been pouring water onto the altar. But what drenches the corners of the altar? Blood. Sacrificial blood is what wets the altar. If you'd been there, for the sacrifice, it was bloody. It was covered in blood. The altar was anointed in blood. So much so, it's the reason why C.S. Lewis, when he describes a temple like that where animal sacrifice is taking place, the, the term he uses as you approach, he calls it the stench of the holy. Because you can smell that sacrifice is being done there. That's what he's talking about here. A sort of battle where the combatants are filled with joy that they are consumed by the Spirit that fills them, and they are so covered, such an excess, they are drenched like the corners of the altar with the blood of their enemies, you ask yourself, and with the blood of their shepherd. With the blood of their shepherd, Jesus, who was the atoning sacrifice, whose blood covers them utterly. You remember that Christ is the sacrifice. It is His righteous blood that drenches us, that allows us to face the fight that we're called to with joy. So the metaphor here is battle. You see God's people waging war, doing battle, but the victory that's being won is not conquest. It is salvation. It is wholeness. This is the flock full of the Spirit roaring like a drunk in celebration. But as they sing, they're not singing, we are the champion. Instead, they're singing praise to God. They sing, how great is His goodness. How great is His beauty. Jeff Smith and I were talking about the Civil War earlier, and he remembered as a young man seeing the photographs that were taken in the battlefields of all of the the dead after the battle, the carnage. And it left an impression on him of the terribleness of war. When you behold a great battle like that, even a great victory, and you see all the death and destruction, you don't sing about goodness and beauty. But when the battle that you've participated in and the battle that you've seen won is a battle of restoration, a battle of wholeness, a battle of freedom, then it's right to sing words like this. When it is Jesus 
coming, our great shepherd king, and rescuing his flock from our sin, then sing about his goodness and sing about his beauty. Because what he's done in offering up himself is the most beautiful thing that has ever been done in human history. If you return to me, with me to the observation deck, the high tower, where we're looking at these events, you can see throughout the chapter, and you'll see throughout the rest of the book, many different things being predicted. Things that are separated by time, by distance. But from here, as we look at them, they blend together. It's hard sometimes to interpret one thing or another. You can mistake one event for another. On the ground, as we're living in history, like day by day trying to get there, it seems like it's taking a really long time for, for this victory to come to pass. Because here we are, like in the rearview mirror, we can see, oh yeah, Alexander the Great, ancient history. First coming of Jesus, ancient history. But it seemed like all this stuff was kind of together. But Jesus coming the first time, that was a long time ago, and we're still walking, and we still haven't reached that horizon. Sometimes we lament that distance. We regret the fact that we haven't gotten there yet. Why is God waiting so long? Why hasn't Jesus returned again? As we look at prophecy like this, we think about its age, it could be easy to lament in that way as well. But here's the thing. Having this, this God's eye view of what is to come shouldn't lead us to despair at how long it's taking. It should actually be a comfort to us as we walk. Because we are heading towards a future. And instead of heading in uncertainty, and he- instead of not knowing what's going to happen, God has said, come up here with me and let me show you where it's all leading. And if you know that, then no matter how long it takes, no matter how many steps are in your journey, you know that whatever it is God has put you on the path to seeking, He intends for you to find that you will reach the place that you saw, that you glimpsed from on high, you will get there. We will experience, we will taste this. Because as long as we have to wait, and as often as we forget it, the reality is that he's coming for his flock. He is coming for his people. And you can believe it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.